I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Ina Stepman. And I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're starting today with the biggest news potentially of the entire year, which is the devastating wildfire in Maui, the increasing evidence of government incompetence. Inez is going to break some of that down for us. Then Ben is going to break down the Hunter Biden sham special counsel that looks worse and worse by the day. And Josh is going to talk about how blue cities don't want blue policies. Always a fun topic that one is. And I'm going to talk about Ronan Farrow's long New Yorker profile he said he worked on for a year about Elon Musk. Uh, there's just a lot to pick apart. And I think uh, it's it's useful to have a broader kind of cultural conversation uh, in a, a NatCon context about Elon Musk and everything that he's up to. So with that, I'm going to toss it over to you, Inez. Yeah, thanks, Emily. Um, obviously, not not a segment anyone wants to to do, um, but we'll get, and I'm sure Emily will have plenty to say about the absolute dereliction of duty that the media is showing, even beyond the very low standards that someone like me or this podcast would have for them. But um, it's taken this long to for a lot of the news about how bad uh, the fires in Lahaina and Maui uh, actually were. For some reason, again, media is allowing authorities to get away with this 114, 116 death toll figure. Um, I, I spoke with uh, reporter Tony Kinnett from the Daily Signal uh, last night at length, and he's he's been on the ground there for, for some days. The Wall Street Journal, also one of the rare news outlets that's doing reporting, uh, serious reporting there uh, worth citing. Uh, it seems like the death toll is likely, unfortunately, going to be over 1,000. And actually, the only question... Um, that is circulating right now, and and the thing that locals are are waiting for um, is to hear what percentage of that total were children. And some people fear that as many as half. So we have potentially 500 deaths of children. And th this would make it one of the top, you know, handful of of worst natural disasters in U.S. history uh, that we're facing. I mean, this is at minimum the level of Katrina. It, it may be worse. Um, and it. It's incredibly tragic. I mean, the the stories of people had nowhere to go. Um, and I think now, of course, the the most important thing um, for in terms of especially what Tony told me last night, uh, locals are asking people, please contra celebrities and Instagram, uh, you know, Instagram girls and in bikinis, please do not cancel your trips to Maui. The rest of the island is operating as normal and in fact, will not be able to support. Um, their their fellows who have lost everything up to and including their families uh, without the tourism industry in Maui. So a lot of the locals are very afraid that this will be like COVID round two for them, um, and and that they won't be able to to sustain their businesses and 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 their families and the help that they've been giving their neighbors, which has been incredible, by the way. Um, you know, we're talking people selling their cars to uh, to get their neighbors, you know, off the street and. You know, while all the stories continue to to pour in in terms of the human cost of this thing, um, there there's an enraging part of this, which is uh, th there are at this point, off the top of my head, at least a half dozen, and this is before, you know, major serious investigation, at least a half dozen points where this could have been averted or mitigated, where the loss of life could have been mitigated. This was not an unknown risk. In fact, there were multiple reports saying that, you know, fire risk in Maui was climbing. Um, the 
power company apparently spent, um, despite having a report saying that they needed uh, to to make sure and maintain the power lines, um, that despite knowing the danger, uh, it seems like they they spent $250,000, that's it, over the course of several years on fire danger, right? Um, and, and that vast sums, millions of dollars were allocated to various quote-unquote green energy projects. Okay, that's one point of of um, incompetency and, and policy making that contributed to this. But there are many, many more. Um, there, there was the the fact that um, that the power lines were downed uh, for apparently ten hours before firefighters got here. They they said that they had contained that this fire was contained. Um, obviously, it was not. The firefighters left because actually they've been putting out fires all over the island. And, and so they had to turn their attention elsewhere. This fire wasn't contained. There was no, no warning for a lot of residents um, that famously uh, the, the tsunami warnings were not activated on the assumption that people are too stupid, that they would run into the fire because it's a tsunami warning activation. Um, the cell phone service was out, so most people did not get the cell phone warning. Right. So you're talking about people who did not know that they were in danger or needed to evacuate until literally the fire was a block or two from their homes. Um, and and the, there was only one road in and out of Lahaina that was blocked. Um, so there's just all of these points. And then I want to read from the Wall Street Journal uh, reporting, which again has been really excellent and, and there needs to be more of this. But um, according to the letter from West Maui land executive Glenn Tremble, the company had to wait five hours while the, the fire was spreading to get approval because the commission, the state commission, asked whether the company had received assurance from a downstream user that his loai used for traditional vegetable cultivation and other uses would not be impacted by a reduction in available water. And, and this, this executive continues, by then we were unable to reach the siphon release that made the adjustments that would have allowed more water to fill our reservoirs. We watched the devastation unfold around us without the ability to help. We anxiously waited in the morning, knowing we could have made more water available to Maui, the fire department, if our request had been immediately approved. Um, you know, there, there's, there's a series of these, and I suspect we will discover more. Um, this is, this is not just an amazing tragedy and something that, um, obviously, our hearts go out to to the victims uh, of this thing. And I mean, it sounds like from some of the, some of the reports that Lahaina became a, a, a vision of living hell um, for some hours during this fire. But it seems like there's a lot of points where this could have been averted or mitigated. And I absolutely think that there need to be investigations into this. Um, with that, I'll, I'll throw it out to the rest of you if you want to discuss, you know, Biden obviously visited yesterday. Um, there are political implications of this. There's the comparison to Katrina, right? Um, Biden, the latest I saw is Biden has fall. He fell asleep at a memorial um, for for the victims of this thing. Uh, he honestly, frankly, he looks very unwell. Um, so I don't even want to pile on him for that. But um, it, it look at this incompetency. Oh, one more of these these points that we've already discovered. Uh, obviously, Pearl Harbor is not very far away. We have you know major naval installations there. Um, why were boats not sent to help rescue people? Why was the military not uh, involved in the rescue operations until many, many days later? Uh, why is it that there are still people who have lost their homes and their families are sleeping in cars or at neighbors' houses while you know FEMA officials are being put up in fancy uh, hotels in, in the island? Um, there, there's a lot of questions that need to be answered, uh, and, and I think this is absolutely worth the House investigation. And with that, I'll, I'll turn it out over to you guys.
I, I don't even know what to say. Um, I mean, you just laid out extraordinary level of details. Um, and like, you know, my, my stomach is over here, just like twisting and knots trying to like, listen to all that and process it all, frankly. Um, uh, I, I, I mean, over a thousand deaths is what we're probably looking at. I mean, the official tally right now is between 100 and 200, but you're right. The number of missing is around a thousand. So, I mean, this is going to be upwards of, of almost like a third of nine 11, um, and just because it happened by gross incompetence, it, you know, every way from Sunday and not, you know, Islamic jihadists, that doesn't really lessen the pain. Um, I, I mean, I've been to Lahaina, you know, like one of my very best friends, I, you guys actually know him. I'm, I'm not going to mention his name because I keep his privacy secret, but one of my very best friends, his brother lived in Lahaina, lost everything, uh, you know, managed to evacuate kind of, I think like his, his diploma and some cherished personal items, but literally lost everything, still sleeping elsewhere on the island and kind of a neighbor's couch. I mean, what can you possibly say? At this point, the only thing that I think we should hope for, which you intimated at the end of this, is some modicum of accountability for this. Unfortunately, it's not obvious to me where that would come by, especially because Hawaii is such a democratic state. And a lot of the, I don't know. I, I mean, we, we need something. I mean, the, the power companies being sued in a private capacity for not de-energizing the lines, maybe that's a modicum of financial justice, but just a horrific story. I don't know what else to say. What we one thing we found out uh, when it came to the I think it was the Paradise Fires in California and as might know more about this is that PG and E has this incredible crony capitalist relationship with the state of of California with the Democratic Party of California. Lee Fong had an excellent report on early indications that might be the case in Hawaii. He didn't make that comparison. I shouldn't put words in his mouth, but basically was pointing to actually in this case what might be the fusion of crony capitalism and ESG. Um, and and that you know is one thing this tragedy I think could expose because we're at risk for similar tragedies in the future. It's it's a potentially as we learn more, it may be a reminder of how this uh, sort of elite capture um, actually prevents us from being able to function um, in ways that you know perform basic services as a business as a government. Uh, and so, you know, right now, just thinking about this, the staggering loss, but uh, it, it may turn out that this also puts on full crystal clear display the dangers of those crony woke relationships um, that are, you know, even just from an ideological perspective, they may be objectionable, but but from the perspective of our institutions being able to perform basic functions, uh, crony capitalism makes that difficult. And when you combine these two things and people are afraid to speak out for being on the wrong side of ESG or whatever it is, um, you make it harder and harder for those institutions to perform their basic duties. So Ben, you have the next topic, uh, but you still have to talk on this one. So uh, maybe you can, you know, bring us together on both of those. Yeah, I guess I would say, and those points are very well taken. Uh, first, obviously, you have to look at and acknowledge the tragedy at play here. But then you have to ask, how is it possible that this level of rank incompetence and idiocy could have facilitated and enabled it? And is it corruption, incompetence, uh, some combination? I think at the end of the day, one of the questions we're going to have to answer, maybe to put a bow on it, is to what extent were lives effectively sacrificed on the altar of environmentalism and progressivism vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, obviously, the regulatory state that existed? And to your point, Emily, also the, the crony capitalist you know, capture of the utility companies and such. Uh, it's, it's horrible that we have to immediately look to those questions, and yet this is the reality of the situation. And it points to, you know, once again, 
kind of the basic failings in a civilization which is supposed to be the most sophisticated and advanced in the history of mankind, almost definitionally, and yet the most basic things we cannot do. And you see it, of course, in progressive dominated jurisdictions, uh, but beyond that as well. Uh, and you have to wonder why the lack of media focus. And of course, it's because it doesn't serve the media's interest to shine a spotlight on the actual failures at play here. Uh, so on that note, I guess transitioning to myself, another story that the media actually turned attention to uh, in the past weekend, very notably and interestingly, and that is all of the recent developments with respect to the Hunter Biden so-called investigation, I'd call it non-investigation and non-prosecution of Hunter Biden. So uh, as folks know, early in August, David Weiss, supposedly the U.S. attorney for Delaware, who has been presiding over the Hunter Biden case, and I put that in air quotes, was uh, asked for and received special counsel authorities in a case where, let's not forget, he and Merrick Garland both said he had full authority to act and to bring charges where he saw fit, yet now has been elevated to special counsel. And sort of the immediate rationale for that is that this sham plea deal fell apart in Delaware. And the Justice Department said, David Weiss said, that they intended to bring charges elsewhere. And so, of course, to bring those charges, he actually did need the special counsel authority that he was never supposed to need in the first place to actually pursue charges in jurisdictions that had declined to allow him to bring those charges in the past namely the Central District of California, as well as potentially Washington, D.C. Now, as I think we might have discussed at the time, of course, this elevation of David Weiss to special counsel was in violation of the regulations of the DOJ itself. Special counsel is supposed to come from outside of government, is supposed to be independent, is supposed to be someone of unimpeachable uh, character, unquestioned uh, ethics and integrity. And of course, this was literally the fox guarding the hen house being elevated to the special counsel because David Weiss, according to the IRS whistleblowers, had tanked at every single turn the investigation and prosecution of Hunter Biden, systematically obstructed the investigation into Hunter Biden, as well as forestalling any and all leads, foreclosing any and all leads to Joe Biden in connection with that investigation. And we've talked about some of the chicanery involved with Weiss's team in killing this case. Well, now we've learned that not only has the sham special counsel been appointed, but some of the events that led up to his appointment as special counsel and what none other than legacy media sources, Politico and The New York Times have shown essentially is that the Hunter Biden case, so-called, would have been dead in early 2023 after the U.S. attorneys in, Del in D.C. and the Central District of California would not allow Weiss to bring the lower level, by the way, tax charges, not including the Burisma offenses, which told statutes of limitation ran out on them in this slow walked investigation and prosecution. The DOJ was planning on not bringing any charges against Hunter Biden. Only when the IRS whistleblowers came to the fore did DOJ and Maine Justice, by the way, step in and working hand in glove with Hunter Biden's lawyers, because essentially the team is one and the same, got together to cook up a plea deal, which was actually going to be even softer than the one ultimately agreed to, and only came, became agreed to these terms of a couple guilty pleas associated with the tax charges because of the revelations of the whistleblowers. And of course, only because the whistleblowers ra raised those revelations 
do we have the Champlis deal? And only then the collapse of that Champlis deal in a Delaware court, exposing the corruption at play here, and then necessitating the creation from the DOJ's perspective of this special counsel. Uh, this entire case stinks to high heaven. Uh, I wrote over on, at my Substack that essentially the fix will still be in here. Don't be fooled at all by the fact that the fox guarding the hen house is now in place, that this is actually going to serve the ends of both Hunter Biden's defense, which apparently leaked this information to legacy media to frame the narrative that David Weiss actually only under pressure from the whistleblowers acted politically in bringing the charges, not that he was acting politically in not bringing the charges the entire way. Uh, and essentially what they're trying to do are a few things. One, I believe, create the appearance that now there's an adversarial relationship between Team Biden and DOJ when they've been on the same side the whole time. Two, create the appearance that the DOJ is now really serious, super serious about bringing charges. And that's why USA Weiss is now a special counsel. And three, control the narrative going forward. How? One, by trying to further stonewall Congress in its oversight, although Congress can tell, frankly, the Justice Department to go pound sand because the House Judiciary uh, Subcommittee on Weaponization agreed to rules allowing it to probe ongoing criminal investigations. And beyond that, because Weiss himself, as the New York Times noted, and this is really important, I think, as the New York Times noted, he can draft a report at the end of this, which, of course, can whitewash the entire DOJ case, as it were, and also harmonize his account of the story and Merrick Garland's account of the story about who had what authorities, when to bring what charges and where. So all that said, I guess the question is, where do you all see this going? Is this going to continue dangle out there and ultimately Weiss is going to run out the clock uh, into the 2024 election or come to some other Champlis deal in a more favorable venue? Is this actually going to be used to hang the international influence peddling scheme around Joe Biden's neck to get him to exit stage left? What do you see coming next? I, I, this is a like the most transparent cover up uh, that you can possibly imagine. If someone was to make a joke, like I understand that some Republicans asked for Weiss to uh, helm the special counsel uh, before before we all witnessed what happened with the Hunter Biden plea deal. Uh, so I, I get that, but after what happened with the Hunter Biden plea deal, the sort of immediate appointment of Weiss as special counsel is laughable. It is such a transparent, I think even Jake Tapper commented on how much of a transparently bizarre situation it is. So a special counsel on this would ideally actually be even looking into what David Weiss did with that plea deal, which David Weiss is not going to do. So it's a transparent cover-up happening in real time. The media is mostly mum um, and, and not paying any attention. I think it's one of the most glaring examples of how far gone we are um, and, and how we can't function as a constitutional republic without a robust fourth estate, uh, which is not something that we have right now. The framers intended the, the republic to work that way, uh, and it, it literally doesn't work if you don't have people holding uh, power to account. Um, and maybe Inez's cat, which is now in the background, uh, could be helpful. Uh, I'm sorry, I had to mention that. But uh, anyway, I'll, I'll toss the rest of you guys. I just think absolutely nothing's going to happen. It'll just be like little tidbits. And that's it. We'll all just have to shrug and be like, okay, cool. Move on. Yeah, I guess I, I just briefly, I mean, it's, it's really obvious, like Emily said, um, what happened here. Uh, and that's that they were trying to clear hunter um and therefore you know end investigations into the big guy um by giving this plea deal and i mean look I, hunter hunter's the lawyers are probably correct 
right? In in this this scrap, in the sense that what was offered to their client was one thing, um, but then unfortunately, what DOJ officials had testified to in Congress was another thing. Um, and it's very convenient to have an ongoing investigation when the House uh, committee is looking into your your activities because you can just say, well, I can't say anything. There's an ongoing investigation. And so those those two um, different incentives just came into collision here in a court. And if not for the judge basically asking, like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Um, we we probably I mean, probably Ben would have noticed Um but but the rest of the, the even the conservative media, let alone the mainstream media, wouldn't have noticed um, the the blatancy of this. So it's it's pretty clear that the two incentives in the GOJ just came into uh, into conflict here. One is not telling anything to Congress, um, and and the other is clearing Hunter Biden so that investigations into Joe Biden have no reason to continue. So uh, the million dollar question that Ben raised at the very end is kind of the relationship between this and the 2024 presidential election, right? And, you know, I was asked about this in a recent interview as to whether all of this is kind of grounds for the Democratic Party to dump Joe Biden. I mean, you know, it's a question that all of us have been asking for for many months now. I mean, even on Meet the Press with Chuck Todd this past Sunday, um, God forbid I don't watch that show, but I saw some clips of it and even kind of the, the like the elite liberals around the, the Chuck Todd roundtable there were were talking openly about how this is like a very big deal, how Joe Biden will not get away with continuing to say, oh, I love my son, blah, blah, blah. I'm Joe from Scranton, Pennsylvania, you know, all that stuff. And I, I think the answer, the riddle can be solved as follows. I think elite liberals in the media and the corridors of think tank power, K Street, the, you know, Raytheon, Boeing boards, you know, places like that. You know, they probably do want to dump Joe Biden, but I don't think they're going to be able to. I, I really just actually do not think they're going to be able to do it at this point, especially because there is clearly not, you know, a singular unifying person that they that they could look to. I mean, even the people that want to dump him would probably be torn between Kamala, Gavin Newsom, and Michelle Obama, God help us, you know, people like that. So I, I just don't see it happening, frankly. Um, I think Joe Biden also just being senile well into, you know, his his doddering years at this point is kind of just a useful idiot, a cat's paw, if you will, for many kind of nefarious interests who want him to be in there. So I just I just don't see it. But anyway, um, we need to transition here. So I'm going to do somewhat of a harsh transition to my topic. Um, so I want to talk about there was a very interesting Substack post that uh, we're recording this on Tuesday that came out this morning from my friend Ryan Gerdusky's Substack, which I strongly recommend to everyone, by the way, anyone who does not read that Substack. I, I have been a reliable reader of Ryan's Substack for many years now. I think that he picks up on some trends that many others tend to miss. And this Substack post that kind of got me going here was entitled New Yorkers Sour on Immigration. And it's basically just an analysis of a Siena College poll of people in New York State, because the migrant crisis in, in, in New York City in particular probably has kind of been really kind of the center of attention for a while now. You've seen Eric Adams, who is a Democratic Party partisan to his core. He's a liberal. He's not a communist like Bill de Blasio, but he's, you know, he's not exactly like a moderate either. He's not kind of the kind of like the back the blue guy that many of us thought we were getting there in any event. Um, this Siena College poll basically shows that even on this issue, on the immigration issue, on the migrant issue, a, a state as blue as New York is clearly not down with what the Biden administration and elite Democrats are doing. So I would encourage you guys to check it out to kind of see all the polls. I'll just read a couple of top line numbers here that's, that stood out to me. When asked if they viewed the, quote, recent influx of migrants into New York, 
how they viewed it, 82% of New Yorkers said it was either a very or somewhat serious concern. This includes 77% of Democrats, 80% of Black New Yorkers, 74% of Hispanic New Yorkers. When asked if New York should work to assimilate new migrants or, quote, work to slow the flow of migrants instead, only 36% said work to assimilate, 58% said we should try to kind of stench the bleeding, cut this off. Again, that number, uh, again, includes 61% of Black New Yorkers, even more actually than white New Yorkers. Black New Yorkers were actually the most restrictionist on this particular question. Even a majority of Hispanic New Yorkers basically said, stop, you know, stop flooding us with these migrants. And in a sense, it, it, it kind of really uh, also uh, justifies what Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, really, I, I think I would, I would pinpoint him perhaps above all others, what, what he was saying months ago, which is that if you want to stop the bleeding, if you want the Biden, if you want the Biden administration to actually do something on the southern border, make the make the liberals feel the pain, you know, make them experience this influx in their neighborhoods. I think Greg Abbott, I would pinpoint as being one person who was kind of voicing this opinion over and over again. And he seems to be right about it. I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure what else to say. I mean, that has kind of empirically proven out to be the case. New York is not alone here. It's, it, it's an interesting state because it's obviously one of the most populous in the country. New York State, um, you know, I guess after California, be the most populated blue state in the country. So it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting state. Not that it's going to go red anytime soon, although, you know, Lee Zeldin did give us a close-ish call in the gubernatorial race last November. Um, but uh, it kind of does just shine a spotlight that a lot of basically what Emily said at the top of the show, I mean, it's not just immigration. I mean, light on crime, you know, law and order would be kind of a natural corollary to immigration when it comes to kind of just public safety issues. The the locus of public opinion in many of America's leading blue jurisdictions simply does not align with Democratic policy, Democratic Party policy priorities. And therefore, from that perspective, you know, this really should be should be ripe for the taking. Um, and, you know, I, I, I've been saying this for many years now. I think that immigration and crime are two of the issues that Republicans tend to issue. The fact that Trump did not issue them in 2016, I think, was one of the reasons why he was able to break through. Um, on the crime issue, I was subsequently a massive critic of his first step back jailbreak, but we'll hold that aside. But the point is that if you run on some of these issues that I think kind of the the conservative bow tie martini class would tell you not to run on, there's actually the data would show you is probably an ample opportunity to pick up people and sometimes even the bluest of blue jurisdictions. So um, kind of just open it up for a conversation on that note for your, your guys' thoughts on that bit of analysis. Yeah, well, um, let's start with the fact that uh, we wouldn't have the opportunity to do some of these investigations, whether into Hunter or potentially into malfeasance in in uh, Maui, if not for the congressional seats delivered by New York. So um, New York is the only other place in the midterms that swung by a comparable amount as Florida. It's just that New York was a very blue state. So that huge 20 point swing was not enough to get a governor into the the, the office, but having lived in both California and New York, I think they're quite different um, in terms of the the hopelessness of the, of the situation. <laughs> um, no, but I, I agree with everything Josh said about crime being uh, an important issue for Republicans to run on. Um, it, it's one of those issues that, again, people can't escape into their day to day lives. Even um, the, the the impact of it uh, starts starts to get to everyone. Yes, people try to withdraw. 
um, to their gated communities and they try to withdraw away from it. They try to hire private security and so on. Um, but fundamentally, you know, there, there's a lot of people in the same way that I don't think that I said we didn't have the, the kind of George Floyd response to the Jordan Neely um, trial. And we'll see what happens with that trial. Um, because too many people had ridden the subway with someone who was psychotic. Um, I, I think it's just one of those common sense things that cuts through politics, even when people are moderate or lean left. Um, and to Josh's second point about immigration, uh, this is why I think very much uh, both Abbott and, and Governor DeSantis, it, it's much more than a political stunt. Like, yes, obviously it is partially a political stunt to send migrants to uh, you know, Martha's Vineyard or New York City. Um, but it's also when it, it, there's there's some substance under the stunt, which is um, these are problems that can be ignored by jurisdictions because they don't have to face them. And now that New York City is facing, um, you know, actually having to to fund and and to face up to some of the the um, both financial and and social problems that come with playing host to large numbers of migrants. Um, you know, a fraction, relatively speaking, to the size of the city of what you know places like Hidalgo, Texas, have been dealing with. Uh, for decades, um, it, it does tend to to give people a more pragmatic understanding of, um, of the absolute mess that our southern border is. And if we're going to continue to have a de facto open border policy, then uh, the, let's say that um, everyone needs to pay their fair share, including Martha's Vineyard in New York City. Well, <clears throat> I'll be brief. Um, for me, this this issue always kind of comes down to, uh, at the end of the day, it does seem as if even in the most progressive jurisdictions, and obviously there's a difference between a New York liberal slash progressive, I guess, and probably a California one, maybe in terms of how realistic they are um, and how naive they, or utopic they might be in their bent. But the question to me is always, what is the breaking point and where is the critical mass? And, you know, it obviously it's one thing to hold a view on principle. And then it's another thing when you actually get punched in the mouth, literally, which is what happens when progressive policies are taken to their logical conclusion. Does anyone want to live with needles strewn everywhere with their kids indoctrinated into racial Marxism in schools with their cars repeatedly broken into and filth on the streets and just the total breakdown in society around them? I don't think so. And then the question becomes then, obviously, yes, one aspect is you retrench and you have armed guards with machine guns outside of luxury high rises in Manhattan, which maybe we'll have someday. Uh, but beyond that, you know, you have people who will leave. And then you have other people who might vote differently or just the most radical of the progressives will be left behind in the wreckage. To me, the question is always, again, what is the breaking point and where's the critical mass? Who's kind of the tipping point candidate that's representative of sanity in otherwise insane jurisdictions? And, you know, while I do think that there were some signs, certainly in 2022 and 2021, that the breaking point had been hit in certain places, I still think if you ask these, if you ask the denizens of New York City, if a candidate had all rational positions on these issues, but say took something approximating a conservative position on abortion, would he be dead in the water? And I think people in these jurisdictions would rather see their lives reduced to misery and chaos than vote against what they perceive to be the more important interest in the hierarchy uh, based upon their political ideology. And obviously this varies by person. 
But nevertheless, I do think people are literally willing to see their lives get materially worse to the extent that policies they don't like don't get implemented. Yeah, and actually, uh, we don't have a ton of time left in this segment, but it, it's kind of an interesting combination of uh, what we're going to talk about next, or an interesting, I guess, pathway to what we're going to talk about next, which is Elon Musk. Uh, one of those people, I think, who has always sort of had libertarian, but maybe even centrist libertarian, like a very American perspective on politics, which is um, kind of that idea that like you leave, you leave me alone we're good. Like government leaves me alone. Uh, and, and that's how I want it. I'll leave you alone. That kind of thing. Uh, the, that sort of classic American libertarian ethos, um, wh whatever you think about it, that's what normal people you can sort of tap into politically. And we see both parties trying to do that. Um, and I think that applies to crime. Uh, and I think when you look at Elon Musk's politics, which are very interesting and were fleshed out in this New Yorker profile that Ronan Farrow says he was working on for a year, that's uh, he, he kind of gets into Elon Musk's transition more to the right. But when you look at crime, for instance, like maybe you're not creating like conservatives for life, but it's such an obvious like kitchen table thing. People walking around in D.C. and New York, I'm just thinking of D.C. because that's where I am right now. Uh, people have been beaten at, at metro stations with bricks in the back of their head uh, in recent days. They have been stabbed with scissors while walking on the sidewalk in nice neighborhoods, DuPont Circle. Like this, is, it, it's, it's a kitchen table thing if you're outside in D.C. Most Americans live in a relatively close, pro close proximity to a major city within commuter distance. A lot of people live actually in cities themselves, so it matters. And it matters in the way that we see uh, that has, has sort of made Elon Musk uh, what the media would call maybe a darling of the right, but I don't even think that's true. I mean, I think, you know, as Ronan Farrow documents, there are certainly some issues that Elon Musk is, is very much in line with conservatives on, like he's befriended the Babylon Bee guys who are Christian conservatives, um, and, you know, on like sexual transitions, all of that stuff, especially for minors, is, is definitely more aligned with the right. But I don't think he's like at any risk, I say that tongue in cheek, of becoming a, a Christian conservative. And one of the interesting thin, things, in fact, in this New Yorker article that Ronan Farrow picks up on is how, and this is where, sort of where I want to go with this conversation, the like Mark Milley, when he's thinking about what to do in Ukraine, has to think about Elon Musk because of Starlink, because Starlink uh, is is so intimately connected to what Ukrainians are doing on the battlefield and what they need to do on the battlefield. Uh, there have been situations where generals are figuring out how to like sort of gently work out their relationship with Elon Musk because he alone basically can control Starlink. And he has huge business in China, which has sided with Putin um, in the, the war in Ukraine. And so Elon Musk is you know, was at once like really eager to go full throttle on Starlink helping Ukrainians and then was sort of, uh, you know, a little bit off the like it, it sort of came down from that and was a little bit more mixed on that perspective. And the same thing goes for uh, environmental issues. Elon Musk and Tesla chargers, Tesla compatible chargers. He is it's so huge in that market space that when uh, the Biden administration is working on EV stuff, they basically also have to, they have like one man to go through and that's Elon Musk. And this is uh, now the same thing with Twitter, which is a natural monopoly, as we've talked about many times, basically virtually a natural monopoly. And so Elon Musk, like it's a genius, right? The way that he's uh, sort of cornered these markets and has become, I would argue, maybe the most powerful person in the entire world when you combine all of these things. Uh, but it, it is also just a, a pathetic statement on 
I think our government, on our business communities, that it was you know, fairly easy. Uh, and I, I'm not saying this to like to take away from what Elon Musk has done, um, but he honestly was just thinking ahead on some of these things and was smart enough to uh, get investors and to you know business savvy enough to build big companies uh, to to make the decision to buy Twitter, which obviously was very. Uh, is a very powerful platform, even though he paid like way too much money for it. And it's just, I, I think it's really worth considering the politics of Elon Musk now that he finds himself in this position. Tons of government subsidies. The other thing I didn't even mention is SpaceX, which basically we have outsourced a huge component of NASA to. Uh, it's like, it's kind of crazy to think about the amount of power that rests in the hands of Elon Musk, somebody who has these like very heterodox politics. Um, I said libertarian to describe him earlier. I mean, really, like it, that's it's not libertarian to just suck up corporate welfare at the level that Elon Musk has. Uh, but on cultural issues, people who have that more live and let live ethos uh, find themselves more and more uh, siding, I, I would say aligning with Republicans in the way that Elon Musk has. So that's a, a lot to kind of process and digest. It was a super long profile and you know, just, we sort of don't need to have read it to dive into some of this interesting stuff. But I, I really want to talk about how he's cornered the market on some of those hugely important uh, government priorities, uh, whether it's communication on Twitter, space exploration, electric vehicles, um, or just having internet on the battlefield in Ukraine. It's, it's pretty remarkable remarkable to take a step back and look at that. So, so a yeah, couple, uh, go um, ahead, Ben, go ahead. Well, just, just going to make uh, a, a couple um, general observations here. Uh, one thing that I think is noteworthy is that Musk is only considered problematic, I think, sort of implicitly in this piece, because he has the wrong views and he holds this power. When it comes to like the Larry Finks of the world or the George Soros of, the, of Soros's of the world or pick your kind of oligarch who's on the right side of progressive priorities. There's no problem whatsoever with the power, but when it's Musk, it is problematic because he doesn't necessarily hold the same views as the regime on every issue. Um, I agree as, as like a judge judged as an entrepreneur, he's kind of tried to corner the market on spaces where he could get government support. And obviously that's in large part, uh, Tess was a, success in the past had been in large part attributed to that government backing. Uh, I guess we can debate whether it's in line with libertarian principles. If you have the corporate welfare out there, are you going to ignore it? Or are you going to, or are you going to pursue it? But I do think the, the deeper and maybe more interesting aspect of this to your point, Emily, is the military industrial complex part of this story. And, you know, they're probably, it's unclear to me necessarily whether, Musk's kind of being intertwined in that complex and the, the disproportionate power he might have in it is incomparable, or if there are other uh, parallels that we can find, there probably are historically. Uh, but this dovetails with something that I'm actually a, a long form writing project that I'll probably talk about in a future episode about how actually Silicon Valley has always been kind of from World War II on at the forefront leading the military industrial complex. Uh, working hand in glove with DOD, um, the internet itself, obviously, and its underpinnings was a part government, part Silicon Valley project and a military associated project. And that has kind of continued straight through to now. And I think one of the only fundamental differences, and I'll argue this in a forthcoming long form piece, is that back in the day, that military industrial complex was fighting against the Nazis and then the communists. Today, that military industrial complex 
views us as equivalent to Nazis and or communists and weaponizes its tools against the American citizens that it used to stand for and fight and defend for, uh, defend. So, um, you know, that's probably another reason why Musk is so problematic because he isn't necessarily oriented the same way again as the rest of the leaders of that complex. But obviously it's incredibly problematic when you have this incestuous relationship between not just government and defense contractors, but also the tech companies, the academic institutions, and virtually every other influential institution as well. And everything essentially becomes a part of the state. And when you hear the government talk about whole of society solutions to problems, uh, you should start running at that point because you have a state that is all encompassing and all subsuming. Um, yeah, you know how they say, uh, or back, back in the sixties, I said, don't trust anyone over 30. Um, I would twist that to be a self-condemnatory. Don't trust anyone from Silicon Valley. Um, <laughs> I, I, so I think it's really interesting how Musk has been treated these days. Um, I, I think there are elements of his uh, thought that are very clearly contradictory to the left. Um, I think he he obviously has a more uh, he has a more elevated sort of goals uh, for humanity, including getting getting to Mars, right? Um, that that are incompatible with a certain kind of leftism. And he's he's been at the forefront of I think moving the Overton window in a very significant way um, on on things that are important. So, for example, I think there was a marked difference in the Overton window before and after Elon Musk tweeted about racial crime statistics. Um, suddenly, that became okay to cite, even though these statistics are completely in themselves neutral and collected by you know um, by government agencies, federal agencies, right? Uh, suddenly, it, before when Elon Musk talked about it, it was okay, and obviously the left like freaked out about it, but it was okay, and a whole bunch of people in the center started to like you know speculate as to you know wh why this is or like, but it, it, it finally like entered the discourse as a a data point. Um, I think he can be very very valuable in that way. I would never mistake him for a fellow traveler. That doesn't mean that that uh, he's he's my enemy either. Um, obviously, he has done, I think, this country a, a great service in terms of buying Twitter. And with all of the issues that, that Twitter has um, in terms of free speech still, uh, it, it's it's clear to me that actually it has become, it has like widened um, the, the kind of discussions that Americans can have. And um, it, it's very good to have that. But I, I, I still think like fundamentally, I don't want to live in a society where you just have to choose your billionaire, um, your sort of billionaire protector. Uh, th there there should be some things um, that we decide as a society that are, uh, are, are not in that in that framework where it's, you know, Fisk versus or Fink, Larry Fink versus, you know, Elon Musk. And we have to we have to pick one or the other, obviously, uh, that that's not the system, at least that we are supposed to have. Uh, I'll be rapid fire here because we got to transition to final thoughts. First, I don't think we've even mentioned Elon Musk's notoriously cozy relationship with China, or if we did, it probably was only in passing. He has a very long history of being way too close for comfort to various Chinese Communist Party affiliated actors that has Thus far, at least not to Twitter users, I've been obvious as to how that is playing out, but maybe something is happening uh, behind the scenes there. 
Um, second, I thoroughly agree with Inez's point about uh, hating this kind of choose your billionaire patron system. Uh, that's why personally I have you know been kind of adamant in pushing kind of alternative solutions to our big tech woes, whether it's antitrust or uh, increasingly common carrier regulation is kind of where I think this ultimately is has to go and probably inevitably will go. Um, Third, I, I I agree that you know it, it definitely is kind of free speech absolutist insofar as the various accounts who were formerly banned then are now unbanned. You know whether it's James O'Keefe, Laura Loomer, and so forth. Um, I would just say that personally, I don't know about you guys, I'm definitely still shadow banned worse than ever. Uh, my 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 engagements all of 2023, I feel like, have been so bad it almost makes me question whether it's even worth it to kind of put stuff up on on Twitter. Fourth, and real quick, I just want to personally lament that the fact that we don't call it Twitter anymore and we, it's like X it is just the dumbest absolute thing. Um, I, it is so dumb. And, and I, I just – I mean it's, it's not even called a retweet anymore. It's like he changed it to a repost. I mean what was it? I mean not that anyone should worship Twitter. It's a stupid company at the end of the day. But I mean they did have this whole kind of branding exercise for 15 or 16 years, the blue bird or retweeting. I think tweet was even added to the dictionary as like a quick post and it's just all gone because, you know, SpaceX, the guy is just obsessed with the 24th letter of the 26th letter alphabet. So uh, kind of a weird dude to put it mildly. Well, on that note, let's transition to final thoughts. Who wants to kick us off? Um, I, I'll, I'll kick us off because actually, um, the whole discussion, both from um, from Josh and Ben, I think, and Emily, um, all of us kind of coming together on on one point about blue states, red states. Um, there's there's a huge difference uh, in my mind between sometimes pragmatic decisions to run moderates on certain issues uh, in blue or purple states, which you know, I may not like, um, but but there's this implicit exchange there with with the voters, right? Even in a place like California, where there are five million registered Republicans, right? Which is um, there, there's this this uh, give and take with your base. You say, well, you know, we're not going to be with you on this issue, but we are going to be with you on these three other issues, and these are popular issues, we can win on these issues, and we're going to deliver for you on these issues, even if we can't deliver for you on part of your platform, right? This is a pragmatic decision. Um, a trade-off, a good a give and take that makes sense in some situations and not in others, right? It doesn't make sense to run moderates in can Kansas, but it may well, you know, for example, make sense to run somebody who is moderately pro-choice in a state like California or New York, Um where I depart from this kind of, to my mind, very pragmatic conversation of trade-offs is when it becomes into like abject surrender and where there's no point to vote for um, the opposition party because in, in all ways their thinking is constrained by the other side, right? Um, and this is, to my mind, the difference between New York and California. Um, New York Republicans have occasionally won or come within spitting distance of, of winning important races. Um, Republicans have controlled, I believe, the, the state Senate um, every so often. Um, it, it's not a, it's it's there is some question of, of pragmatism. I think the reason I, I think I do think like a, a law and order candidate, um, you know, would do very well here, um, just in the same way that Giuliani did very well as as mayor, um, and then ran for president, right? Uh, uh, and he was pro-choice still. Um, 
when he ran for president. Uh, but I, I just want to contrast that with what the California Republican Party has done recently. They they put out a um, kind of a piece up up on the blaze about this, but they have a, a platform. Um, they've proposed changes to their platform, and on every single issue, they seem to have surrendered. Uh, to the left. So um, they have dropped any support for uh, pro-life policies. They put in instead one bland sentence about reducing abortion. They've dropped their opposition to same-sex marriage. Again, those you could argue maybe pragmatically in California, there's some trade-off to be had there. But they they also, their plank on homelessness, which is the biggest, you know, most visible problem facing a lot of people in California, um, a, an issue where they could absolutely swing moderate votes and even Democrat votes to their side. They take the leftist frame on it. They don't say a word about law enforcement, not a word about encampments, right? They say that it's a problem of job training and placement, which is just ludicrous and stupid, right? Um, they, they have... Uh, lessened their support for Prop 13, which is a, a protection on one of the many taxes in California, preventing property taxes from going too high. Um, and, and they have, they oh, and they dropped voter ID and all election integrity pieces off their platform, right? At that point, it's not about a pragmatic offer that you're giving to a conservative voter. Let's say, you know, look, we can't be with you on these issues in which you're very unpopular. Your views are very unpopular in our state, but here are three other issues that are popular and that you care about as well, and that's the trade-off we're offering you. Um, that's not what's happening. They're just allowing the left to, anything that the left says is, you know, bad or bigoted or scary in some way. They've allowed uh, the Republican Party itself has allowed itself to its thinking to be constrained by that in California. And I, to me, that's the, the symptom of like you're never coming back from that. There's no reason to vote for Republicans in California. In fact, I would cheer the rise of some kind of moderate third party or libertarian third party. I'm not a libertarian. It's a libertarian third party. Like any, you know, hell, like a, a moderate Hispanic party in California would probably be a superior alternative to the Democrats in California than, than the California Republican Party. And that's, I think, when you know the state is, is truly at the end of the line. That's just my my two cents. Um, I, I will be fairly quick here. I, I can't remember if we covered this on the last show. I don't remember that we did. So I wanted to say a quick word about the new country music sensation, Rich Men North of Richmond, which I'm sure most in our audience have already listened to or watched the music video by now. Um, first of all, as a diehard country music fan, it's been wonderful to see this become the second country music cultural sensation of the summer um, after the whole kerfuffle surrounding Jason Aldean's Try That in a in a small town, the music video and all of that. But it's it's worth just saying a quick word about this song, um, which isn't necessarily catchy in kind of like a pop music kind of catchy way, but it, it has been so deeply impactful, I think, for many because of, of, of the message that it sends of basically the, the you know the, the rich men north of Richmond, aka the elites in Washington, DC, the ruling class, the folks who we on this podcast rail against week in and week out, how they have put their own interests above the interests of their fellow citizens, whether it's in terms of offshoring jobs overseas, whether it is these you know, you know, stupid, uh, you know, boondoggle foreign policy crusades, uh, the open border, all, all, all the stuff that we talk about week in and week out. And it, it's really just touched a nerve. And I, I think the backlash to this to the song from some has similarly, uh, you know, the natural corollary of touching a nerve in a positive way is that the backlash has been 
hyperbolic and just frankly just outright silly condescending in many ways and not just liberal publications and liberal commentators in fact it was national review it's itself uh you know the the, the so-called flagship for conservatism that published this hideous blog post from i believe mark antonio wright which, which was saying like dude just get a better job if you hate your job this much i mean talk about being out of touch right um i i mean like i i couldn't just help but but grimace and, and smirk and kind of in kind of uh, just a terrible way as I was reading all that. But anyway, I'm getting way too afield here. Um, I'm really happy the song was written. Um, I hope that there is more to come in this vein. And it's really just great to see country music just make global headlines too. Well, I'll jump around in a couple uh, disparate areas real quick. First of all, uh, a rest in peace to James Buckley, William F. Buckley's brother, who uh, whatever you think about National Review and Bill Buckley and the history of the conservative movement. Uh, Jim Buckley is a pretty remarkable American, served in the executive, legislative, and judiciary branches. I believe was the last Republican U.S. senator from New York. And actually, I believe it was a conservative party senator from New York. I had the opportunity to meet him and interview him about a decade ago. Uh, remarkable character, remarkable intellect, and really an underrated figure who may have been overshadowed publicly by his brother, uh, but was really an intellectual force and, and a patriot. So worth taking a look at some of the recent profiles of him that have been, dra that have been drafted, uh, an inspiring and distinctly American figure. To on a totally different point, um, we've kind of probably talked about, at least in passing, this sort of so-called ethics uh, effort to go at the Supreme Court and Supreme Court justices, you know, vacationing with wealthy friends and such, uh, leaving aside the obvious hypocrisy from Democrats who engage in this stuff all the time. Um, and the fact that there's nothing untoward about many of these relationships. And obviously, there's been an assault specifically on Justice Clarence Thomas, but on other justices as well. I want to link that effort to go at the Supreme Court, uh, linked also, by the way, obviously, to the Dobbs leak and the attempts to threaten Supreme Court justices to the lawfare jihad going on in the multiple Trump indictments. I think that there's a one-two punch going on here that links these two kind of lines of attack that might otherwise appear independent. With the Trump cases, it's about criminalizing the opposition. And with the effort to delegitimize and undermine the Supreme Court, it's about neutering the one institution that could potentially provide defense for the opposition currently being criminalized. So the one venue where people might go for relief to the extent essentially being conservative is criminalized in this country, the Supreme Court, the whole attack on the Supreme Court is about removing that venue as a defense mechanism and total essentially ruling class dominance. Last but not least, since uh, Inez you know, briefly touched on it with this uh, California watered down platform. We're going to be focusing, uh, certainly the media wants to focus on the presidential horse race. Um, and obviously there's plenty of intrigue there, but don't forget the election integrity issue, which obviously they don't want us to talk about and is in part what these criminal cases so-called are about. If election integrity is wholly eroded, and obviously there were all those election fortification so-called efforts in 2020, you can bet that they will be redoubled going into 2024. The game is over. The candidates don't really matter at the end of the day. And I think that is what our ruling elites wanted. They never want an unauthorized candidate to be able to win again. And so we better take a good hard look 
at what fortification efforts are going on going into 2024, because that may make the candidates essentially an irrelevancy. I'll just say, um, you know, we, we did our whole fir first segment on the, the staggering losses in Hawaii and um, the videos that continue to come out of President Joe Biden uh, appearing to fall asleep at a ceremony uh, for the victims, rambling about a, a strange story where he says he experienced, you know, he almost experienced what it was like to lose a house because of a, a fire that was quickly stopped by firefighters, even though it almost got his 67 Corvette. I think the, those two uh, things were from the same event. Um, I don't mean this in a partisan sense, but it, it is in incredibly uh, sad statement on the country um, that this is the man who was elected uh, by voters because basically they, they had no other choice. Uh, all of the choices uh, of 2020 Democrats were incredibly radical. This is the one person who was promising maybe a step back from Medicare for all, although it was still a pretty radical platform. Um, you, you just, it, it, left and right, the sort of small R sense of Republican virtue uh, is not a part of our culture anymore. That sounds nerdy. Nerdy, but it doesn't have to be nerdy in, in practical application. Basically, just means having a culture that rewards uh, you know, Republican virtues and a culture that uh, stigmatizes and punishes people who are not uh, displaying Republican virtues. It, it makes it more difficult to be so uh, objectively uh, awful uh, as as Joe Biden is in this case, and I would say Joe Biden too accompanied him on the trip and and let him uh, uh, disrespect uh, victims this way. Uh, it is just. It is incredible, and it's just a sad statement on where we are as a country. Um, so on that note, we'll be thinking about and, and praying for all of the victims down in Hawaii for the rest of this week. On behalf of Ben, Josh, and Inez, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Emily Jashinsky, and we'll see you at the next NatCon Squad.